The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to pick up in the book of Exodus. Last week we started out the book of Exodus. Started, we looked at all these kind of major themes in the book and just kind of started saying, okay, what's the whole book about? What are we looking at? What's the book of Exodus about? Tonight we're picking up chapter 2. Um, one thing just to, for you to be aware of, we're not going to preach every chapter of the book. We're, going to, we're looking to preach through the book of Exodus by the end of May beginning of June, that time frame, and we're going to be picking out major selections as we go through the book of Exodus um, that are picking up on this big, this main concept of the gospel according to Moses, right? So the gospel, we're going to see the gospel clearly in the book of Exodus. We're going to look at what the gospel is in the book of Exodus, and so I think every chapter points to that, but we're going to kind of highlight the main chapters. Um, so we're going to pick up in Exodus 2, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just look at this passage together. Father, uh, we turn to your word and we begin to look at this exciting book together. We are excited about what you're going to show us and teach us. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word and to look to you and to believe that you're working even when we can't see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is, um, <clears throat> I guess if some of you have Monday off, you would know that this is MLK weekend. Um, so, and which I find really, I'm really uh, grateful that we're starting this book on MLK weekend, um, Martin Luther King weekend, um, because this book has shaped a lot of how Martin Luther King thought about the civil rights movement. Um, by the way, did you know that? So uh, I didn't know this. I looked this up today. Uh, MLK, uh, the Martin Luther King weekend, wasn't nationally celebrated by, in every state as Martin Luther King Day until 2000. I didn't know that. Were we? Yeah. Like it was like they like people kept changing the names on it. Like, but it was like every state celebrating it as Martin Luther King Day um, didn't happen until 2000. I was shocked because I grew up. In public school would always be like Martin Luther King. But anyhow, I just thought that was free information. So, um, but Martin Luther King, um, you know, he was profoundly shaped by this book. Um, you know, obviously you have, you know, Let My People Go, which is a direct quotation from the book of Exodus. But just the book itself of liberating people from the bondage of slavery, um, the bondage of oppression, massively shaped how Dr. King thought about things, uh, shaped how he approached uh, the civil rights movement with the nonviolence, right? It shaped how he thought about things, but it was primarily because he found himself, and I think that we're supposed to, with Dr. King, find ourselves in the book of Exodus, find ourselves and our struggles in this book, relating to these characters, relating to their struggles, and here we are at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and I think we can begin to find ourselves in this story because they are struggling, and they don't know where God's at, and they need God's help, which it often describes our own lives, right? We're struggling, we don't know where God's at, we don't see what he's up to, but we, we have this book in front of us saying God's working, yet we don't see how God's working in our lives. And that's where we find ourselves at the, the, the beginning of the book of Exodus. So Exodus 1, everything's going on. God's been silent for 400 years. The king, uh, the, or Pharaoh, I'm going to keep going back and forth between saying king and Pharaoh. They're kind of like the same thing, except one's an Egyptian word and one's in 
American English word. So, <laughs> but the Pharaoh changes hands. He's like, these guys, Israelites, are a big nation and they could take us over. And so we're going to start oppressing them and we're going to make their life real hard. And just to make it matters even worse, we're going to start uh, throwing out, throwing um, their young baby boys in the river. So we're talking about some major oppression that's coming their way and they are crying out to God. They're crying out for God's help. And that is, they're crying out, God, this is not right. You've made these promises. Would you help us? And that, I think, is at the heart of what faith is all about. Faith is, look, God, you, you've promised. You're real. God, would you help us? We need your help. God, the, the heart of faith is crying out for God's help. And so we're going to be looking at this story. We're just going to walk through it uh, in three sections. And each section, we're going to be looking at an aspect of faith, looking to God's help looking for God to rescue us. And so we're just going to pick up in verse 1. We're just going to start out by looking at risky faith obeys God's word. So I'm just going to read through this, and I'm going to make a few comments as we read through. Chapter 2 of Exodus, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, and had it, um, she hid him three months. So I know it seems weird, but it's like in a lot of cultures they'll do this. Like like Korean culture, like they won't like the women. They'll have babies and then they'll like just like be sequestered for three months. I'm not sure why, but that it's like a practice in some cultures where they just like hide away for three months. I imagine just to keep the germs away. But here she is. She's doing something similar, hiding the child away. When she could hide him no longer, right? So just to give you a context, uh, little Silas, our baby. Four months old, same idea, starting to kind of talk and gibber, <laughs> making a little bit of some noise, making himself known. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it in, in bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. So typically we tend to think of this scenario as like she kind of like, Put him in the river, and there he is, like going down the Nile River. But actually, like if she had done that, like the crocodiles would have eaten him. <laughs> so, so we just pay attention. She's putting him in the like basically like the bank of the river, right? Like amidst all the little like brush that we all hate to stand in. That's where she put little baby Moses. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked by the, beside the river. So that's her posse walking around. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children, right? She would have known that because uh, Hebrews were the only ones to circumcise their little boys. So opening up, Probably a little naked baby boy. Game's up. Knows this baby is a, a little boy. Hebrew. Knows what's going down. Um, and so, and the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. Oh, wait, sorry. And the sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Right? This is like a classic movie. Like, there, she's in the right place at the right time. Right? I see what's going down. Watching my brother. So, Shall I go and get you this uh, 
Hebrew women to nurse the child, and the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the woman went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So that's probably, uh, they, would, they would typically in that culture, they would have nursed till three or four years old. So, you know, four-year-old child, then finally kind of being taken over to Pharaoh's daughter, to the princess. And when the child grew up, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she adopted him formally. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And so, uh, as we're looking through this, we're, we're seeing, as I just do, it's like, okay, where is risky faith in this? Well, risk, so hiding, disobeying the king's command and keeping this child hidden, that was a big risk for the family. Um, but it was primarily his mom that was making the risk, right? Not really, maybe the dad was okay with it, but it seems like mom's kind of in view here. One woman in view, she's taken the risk of faith. So then um, she does this. It's, it's funny because the command is, the, a pharaoh's command is, put the babies in the river. Well, she technically obeys the command, right? <laughs> she just puts something underneath the baby as she's putting him into the river, right? So she obeys the command, puts him in the river, and then the, his, his, uh, the older sister for baby Moses, she's taking a risk by standing nearby, watch it. What's going to go down with this baby of mine? This, this brother of mine, what's going to happen? And then when the Pharaoh's daughter uh, takes the baby up out of the river and says, I want to take this baby for myself, who is clearly, like, obviously like a, a, a Hebrew, so he should be dead, right? But she's taking a risk of like, no, I'm going to show compassion on this little baby and adopt him into my family. Which um, one commenter on this passage commented that this was the greatest act of any Egyptian in this entire story. Because from here on out, the Egyptians are not good guys. <laughs> this is the only one. That, and the funny thing is, is that none of the people in the story are named. None of the women are... We find out who they are later, right? We find out their names later on. But here they're not named. But we do have a, uh, we have a, a picture of what's going on here. Um, because what they're doing is you have Moses' mom and you have Moses' sister... They're both trying to protect this baby boy because they know God's word says you don't murder, right? They haven't received the Ten Commandments yet, but earlier in Genesis, God said, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by, the, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man his own image. Point being, don't murder, right? So they already knew that. That was a part of their culture. They knew God said you don't murder. And so here they are, they're saying, not only does God say don't murder, but God said he's going to provide a nation, he's going to fulfill these promises for us, and they're believing in God, and they're trusting his word at risk. But we have, um, we have, thankfully, the book of Hebrews that begins to interpret scripture for us. Because we could see that and say, okay, yeah, they're, they're believing God's word. But Hebrews 11, chapter, 20, or ch- chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born... So this is not Moses' faith. I think it's the faith of his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they were in faith. The risk of their faith was, you know, the king says this, but we're going to obey God. We're going to trust God and we're going to hide this little baby 
and protect him. So that might be, you might kind of view that as like, that's a, maybe a big act of risk of faith or it's a small risk of faith. I'm not sure where it falls on the spectrum, but it seems like there's, they're risking, their faith leads them to risk uh, in obeying God's word. And that's the same way it's always going to be for us, right? There's a risk of obeying God's word. Um, and what I mean by that is when you are obeying God's word, when you're obeying God, you're saying, um, God, I'm going to trust you for the outcome of, of this. I, I trust your design rather than my expectations and how I want the world to be. I'm going to trust that what you have said is true rather than my orientation towards the world. We, um, and I think what's helpful here is that these people are unnamed and yet they're commended for their faith, which should give us hope because I love you all, but we are not going to make the front page. <laughs> we are not the type of people that are going to make front page news. We are just simple people who love Jesus and we love Jesus together. But that's the people that God commends their faith for, right? I mean, you have to remember, the, the, these books were written at a time where they, it was painstaking to write out this huge story. And they zero in on these details of these women who are commended for their faith, for these small acts of risky faith to trust God. And I think that when we, when we look at obeying God um, here, it would have been easy for them to... It would, just, it would have been easy to appease the king's command, right? Throw the baby in the river. It would have been heart-wrenching. But look, if we all do this, we just all get on the same page. We're going to do this horrible act. Um, he will, the king will relieve the pressure, and we will uh, hopefully not be as so deeply oppressed, right? We, uh, it would have been easy to obey the command of the king rather than to obey God. And I think that's usually the way it works for us with... Um, what's easiest in life versus obeying God, right? It's easy, for example, um, let's just happen to imagine that you're in an argument with your spouse or your friend or family. It's easy to want to get your own way, to, to manipulate the argument, to, um, to try to, to give them what they deserve, right? Get the email that's a little frustrating. It's easy to send back, you jerk face, you know, <laughs> or whatever, or to acquiesce, to say, okay, I'm not going to fight this. You're dead wrong, but I'm just going to let you get what you want anyways. Like, it's easy just to kind of like acquiesce and just kind of like give over. It's easy to get your way in the argument. It's, um, that's the way anger often works, right? Anger often works like we want to get our own way and we're going to make it happen by our expectations. But, but God says, love your neighbor. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, a soft word turns away wrath. So he, he's saying, this is how to manage the anger that you have to, to address your heart. But we, it's easy to give in our own hearts. So as it would have been easy for them just to acquiesce to the king. But the risk is to say, you know what? I'm not going to give over. I'm not going to be run over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. I'm going to work through my own heart. But I want to engage this so that we're, we're loving each other and knowing each other truly. Um, because we want to obey God's word. And it's going to, the risk there is because the, the outcome is not in our control. <laughs> the outcome's never in our control. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what God's going to do with our obedience. We, we do know that God is going to reward obedience, but we, we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know if we 
insist on obeying God's word and working through um, obeying God, we don't know what the outcome's going to be. It's often hard and difficult, just like it is for these women, right? It would have been easier just to kind of not have to deal with this, but it, it's hard to obey God. Um, and I think that maybe, here's a question that I find helpful in addressing. Is there, are you trusting in God to obey his word? Or are you, um, are you just kind of living by the expectations of the world? So here's a question. What in your life is only explainable because Jesus is real? Are you, that is to say, if Jesus is real and his word is true and you're going to obey his word, what in your life shows that you're taking the risk of obeying his word rather than just whatever the culture tells you, whatever your heart tells you you want to do? Right, that should lead us to ask the question, how are we like these women in this story, obeying God at, at our own risk, but because we, want to, we love God and we want to obey him, um, what, what is only explainable in our life, maybe it's um, not sleeping around, if you're single. Maybe it's not sleeping around like the culture would tell you to do. Um, maybe if, it's, if you are having uh, anger arguments, between folks, maybe it's humbly repenting and saying, you know, I'm not going to insist on getting my own way in this argument. Um, I'm going to love you and I'm going to repent of however I have offended you in this argument, even if it's only 5% of the, of the, of the problem, right? If a true assessment, uh, if it's really just, I'm only 5%, I'm going to repent to the 5% that's mine. Uh, that is only explainable because Jesus is real, and loves to reward our obedience to him. It's a, it's a risk to be humble and to trust God. Now, what's interesting is this story, we talk about how these women are anonymous, but it's actually the point of this whole narrative, so verses 1 through 10, is that these, all these women are anonymous, they're not named, but then Moses is named at the end. So what's his name? His name is Moses. So the point is to get us to see Moses. So Moses, the main character here, all these women who will find out who they are later, get their names later. The point is, as we're getting the story going, we're going to introduce to Moses and Moses, the key figure. So let's pick up in verse 11. So we've been talking about the risk of faith, obeying God's word. We're going to look at broken faith, trust God's power. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. We're going to read to verse 15. One day when Moses had grown up, so just by the way, grown up would have been, he would have been about 40 years old, right? Grown up like big time grown up, not like 15 year old grown up. Uh, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, uh, out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the, one, to the man in the wrong, why are you striking your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So I think what's going on here for Moses is we're getting introduced to him. Moses is, um, he's the untempered idealist, right? 
he has he has this ideal of how people should be treated. I think he he very strongly you see here, one day Moses had grown up, he went out to his people to look on the people uh, look on the burdens of his people, and then the end of the verse, one of his people, right? He, these are his people. He's very clearly Hebrew. Like he would have been kind of like the the black sheep of the family of the of the uh, of the Egyptians. People knew, yeah, this is Moses. He's kind of like the <laughs> the weird guy in the family. Somehow we got this Hebrew in our family. I don't know how it happened. We got all these cats running around because we're Egyptians, and then we got Moses. <laughs> I'm the, but it's clear that Moses. Uh, he identified with his people. He, these were his people. Um, and this is not right, them being how they're treated. Um, and yet, at the same time, he was also, he would have, so he would have been about 40 years old. Um, and he probably, my sense is that he was strong. Like this guy, uh, this guy was pumped. Like maybe a bit of a jock. Not sure. That's just maybe injecting a bit of interpretation in there. <laughs> but he, uh, because I mean, he he strikes down this Hebrew guy, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, this Egyptian, right? So he he kills this guy with his bare hands, strikes him down, um, and then he he you got the two guys who are in the middle of a fight, and he's willing to step into the middle of that. So it's clearly he's strong, right? He's a strong guy, strapping, um, and, but he cares about the injustice of what's going on, right? He cares that this is not right. These are my people, and it's not right how they're being treated. Um, and then the story goes on, he gets uncovered, right? People know what's going on and, um, he, he runs for it kind of like, in some ways it's like, okay, it's like the end of the story. That makes sense. Right. I mean, how many people get caught for what they're doing and then you see him on the news, uh, speeding away, right? That no big deal, but it's interesting. So we said earlier, right? Scripture interpreting scripture. So we have Hebrews 11 interpreting this passage for us. And so Hebrews 11 picks up this very strange moment in the story um, that makes us kind of reassess a bit of kind of like that flat reading. Moses, get, Moses murders a guy, um, gets caught for it, he's afraid and he runs for it, right? That's kind of a flat story. But Hebrews interjects an interesting dynamic here that maybe we might not have seen before. So Hebrews 11, verse 23 through 27, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured... Um, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Okay, so just point this out, right? So Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. When Moses, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So it's saying Moses was afraid. Hebrews 11. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. <laughs> What's going on there? Like, why, why does Exodus say he's afraid? Hebrews says not afraid. So here's what I think is going on. As I'm interjecting this question for you, can I trust the Bible? Here's the Bible clearly uh, contradicting itself. 
I think what's going on here is that, um, well, I think what's going on is that basically in the story, yes, fair, uh, Moses is afraid, right? He, he's afraid of Pharaoh finding out and putting him to death. My sense is that maybe since he was a part of Pharaoh's family, he could have gotten off the hook. You know, just the way royal families work. Just a sense. Maybe that's modern interpretation. But um, my sense is that, yes, he was afraid. But remember, he was identifying with his people. Like, these are his people. So he not only identified with the Hebrew people, with the Israelites, but he trusted in their God, right? He said, God is going to reward these people. God is going to fulfill his promises to the people of Israel. And I'm trusting in that God because these are my people. I'm with their God. And so what Hebrews is doing is just looking back on this story and saying, you know what? Yes, Moses um, was not a great example of this moment, right? But it seems that by faith, uh, Moses was trusting in God and identifying with his people. And it's picking out this kind of like needle of his faith amidst the haystack of mess in his life and saying, okay, yes, Pharaoh, uh, Moses would have been afraid, but... Um, the biggest thing that was going on is that he actually trusted in God and was already deciding to identify with his people rather than to identify with his adopted family, right? So does that make sense? Kind of like, it's yes, there was a, he was afraid, but he was ultimately driven by faith, um, even if it was uh, impetuous and arrogant faith, right? So Moses is not a great example at this moment, which is why we're talking about broken faith, because that's where the story is going to go. Does that make, can I just kind of pause? Everybody tracking with what I was just saying? Cool with that? Okay. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, filled the troughs, and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, what is this... Uh, what is it that you have gone home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds, even drew water for us and water the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with, with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here we have Moses has run, left, fled from Egypt. And we're beginning to see the breaking of Moses here. Because Moses, who was kind of like this impetuous idealist, right? This is how it should be. All my people, they shouldn't be treated like this. Uses his strength to kill a man. Runs into the desert, and then first thing we see after Moses had to dwell on this for a little bit is that Moses is now using his strength to save people. Moses went from being a guy who would have probably killed these shepherds, right? And now he's using his strength to save the women and to provide for them and help them, right? His strength, he's been broken in his perspective. He hasn't left God behind, but he has been broken and trusting in himself. He continues to trust in God and identify with his people, right? He's still identifying with his people because there at the verse, verse 22, uh, it says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, which means I'm not with my peeps, right? I'm not with the people I belong to, um, but I intend to go back to them. And so 
Moses is here being broken of trusting in himself, in his own power. Rather, now he's using his power because he's trusting in God. He is, in effect, through this whole passage, he is saying um, at the beginning, saying, uh, God needs to let his people go and I'm going to make it happen in my own way. And then by the end of the passage, he's saying, you know what? I can't trust myself, but I still identify with God. And I still, I love God and I have faith that God's going to deliver his people. Which I think um, is often the way faith works in our own life, right? We, uh, we think that we've got it all together and I'm going to make this happen in my own way, right? Um, like we were talking about these arguments, right? If you get in an argument, I'm going to win this in my own way rather than being broken of trusting your own power and resting that, that God's going to handle this. Um, or like uh, getting a spouse, right? Sometimes um, my single friends will just so desperately want a spouse, they'll do anything, do anything just to, to make it happen. God, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to compromise my values just so that I can get a spouse, right? So like Moses, good thing, but doing it in our own, spouse, in our own strength. Or uh, for example, with my children, right? I want my children to obey me. <laughs> Instead of being a good father that pastors and cares for them and helps them to obey me. Sometimes it's just easier just to yell and get my way, right? I trust in my own power, you know? <laughs> it's, if you've been at our house, you know that I'm confessing that and needing God's help, right? But this is, this is God saying in this story, I will not let my salvation be done by man's power. Moses, you cannot lead my people out. You cannot save and lead my people out. My salvation will be by my power and my power alone. My power is what will lead my people out, my, will redeem and save my people. I will do it in my strength, not your strength, right? This is a clear mark in this story. Moses, your power, though you got the guns, you're strong, you're not going to do it in your strength. God, that's the way the gospel begins, right? The gospel begins in our lives by saying, all, this thing that you, all the things that you think are impressive about you, do jack to help you. They cannot help you. They will never help you. You cannot change yourself. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot solve your problems on your own. There is nothing in you. All the power that you bring to the table is like sand compared to the mountain, of God's glory and power. God cannot and will not let you be your own strength for your own salvation. Right? That is the, the beginning of the story of Moses and the beginning of the gospel according to Moses is God will break you so that you can be saved. God will fix you, but he won't fix you in your own power. Right? This isn't like God saying, well, here's, here's a book that's, um, you know, just, just read this and then come back to me in the morning and we'll be okay. Right? That's, not, that's not the way the story goes. The story is God's power shapes and radically changes you from the inside out. You must be broken of trusting in yourself. That is what Moses is experiencing. That's what you experience. That's what we need. We cannot trust in ourselves. Right? We must be broken from trusting in ourselves, which for New Englanders is like the, the miracle of God. Right? We will not allow other people to help us. But that is the gospel. You cannot help yourself. That is what Moses has all these ideals. He can't fix it. God comes in 
and shapes and breaks Moses. So that he has, he has a broken faith, right? And in the book of Genesis, Jacob has a limp because God touched him and broke him. It's a limp for the rest of his life. We will always have weakness. We will always be weak. We will always depend. We will always be needy because that is the way faith works. That is the only faith that God uses. So let me ask you a question. Where is God pushing you to break you from trusting yourself, from trusting in your power? Where is God pushing you to break you from trusting in yourself? Which means, where is God pushing you to trust in him? Where, what, what is going on in your life where you're saying, you know, I'm trying to accomplish in my own strength, um, and I think I'm doing a good job, so thank you, God. I don't think I need your help here. That's a dangerous place to be because left to yourself, you will crumble and crush. God will break you so that you can trust in him. So what, what are the struggles or the stresses that are coming that you feel like, I just want to, you know what? Um, what's going to really help me get through this is uh, five, five tequilas tonight, right? I'm just going to... Five tequilas a night is going to help me get through this because uh, God's, uh, I don't need God. I just really need to relax and then I'll wake up and I'll make it happen. What, what are you facing where, um, you know, just a little bit of more porn is going to help me uh, handle the stress here. Um, I, just, I, I really, I've got it, God. I've got it. I just need to, I just need to, de- I just need to kind of like check out for a minute and, and indulge. What, what's going on where you think, um, you know what, getting angry is really going to solve this problem right now, and if I just yell a little bit more, I'll get my way. That, God, I don't need your help. I just need to do this on my own, right? So we can go down the list, right? We just we can touch them all. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, what you're looking at, what you're yelling about. All these things tend to be ways in which we trust in our own power, just like Moses, right? Trusting our own strength, flexing our own muscles so that we get what we want and get what's right. But God would have you be a broken man or woman because he is going to use his power in you to do the things that, like Moses is going to go do, that seem impossible. Right? To respond graciously when you're being slandered or accused. To say no and walk in purity. To be kind to the people that have just been total jerk faces to you the whole time. Right? This, this is God's power in Moses beginning to shape him and break him so that he will be the man that God's going to use. And then one other way I think this applies to us is what I find helpful about the book of Hebrews and that, that view of Moses, right? <laughs> could, you, could you imagine Moses showing up here? Um, hey guys, I just want you to know Moses is coming. He wants to join the church. Um, so tell us about Moses. Well, Moses, um, he's a capital murderer, right? He murdered somebody and then he hid his body in the sand and then he ran for it. And now he trusts in Jesus and he wants to become a member of the church. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. Lead the youth ministry, right? <laughs> Could you imagine how crazy that would be, right? And that's kind of what we get in this story. That's not what we're all we're left with, but in the story, that's a bit of like, that's what we're left with in this story. But the book of Hebrews looks back on Moses and says, yeah, but there, but Moses trusted in God. Moses had this needle of faith in the haystack of mess, right? 
And I think as, I'm not saying that you guys are murderers or anything like that, but I think as we live our lives together in the church, we need to be attentive, like the book of Hebrews looking at Moses. We need to be keeping our eyes attentive to where is grace alive in each other's lives? Where, where's the needle of faith? Where's the needle of grace, right? Because we could look at Moses and say, man, this guy was totally weak and a total jerk. Um, and not to mention he's a murderer, right? Um, but let's have eyes. Let's have eyes to look towards grace in each other's lives to see, not the weak, not to highlight the weakness. When you talk about me <laughs> to each other, I would hope that you just don't say, um, "Yeah, he's just a real." We have to be real patient with Jacob as a pastor. Um, I, maybe you do, but but find the evidences of God's grace. Look to the grace of God rather than the weaknesses that you see in each other. Right. See, see the needle of God's grace and faith in a person's life rather than the weaknesses that tend to be the things that annoy us, right? right? So just as a, a way to think about how to supply our lives, so let's, so let's pick back up in verse 29, or front 23, we're going to finish the story out. What is God doing? Because God has broken Moses, and now we're going to look at, uh, so he's broken faith in Moses, and now we're going to talk about knowing faith. Knowing faith looks to God's faithfulness. So let's read verse 22, 23, 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here we have, we have all these, this narrative of Moses going out to the desert, and then we kind of begin to zoom out, right? This is a, the panning out and seeing the heavenly perspective of what's been going on, right? It's a bit of a summary statement. It's kind of stepping out and saying, okay, this is what everybody's experiencing, but what's God seeing, right? What is God seeing in this whole situation? It's a heavenly perspective, and it's kind of like how we all, you know, you go through a difficult time in your life, and then like five years later, you look back and you say like, oh, like I saw God doing this or that. Like I saw that God was shaping me or changing me. I saw that God was protecting me from this or that. This is kind of like that, right? Where God is saying, okay, all these difficult things are going on, right? But what's God, what is, what's going on in the clouds above, right? What's God's view here? And what happens in this story is that the Israelites, it is totally right for them to be groaning under their slavery and crying out for God. And we often see them as a bit of a negative example of like what not to do in the story that we're going to be looking through. But it's okay to groan and to cry out for rescue from slavery. It's okay to look to God and say, God, this is not right and we need your help. And while they're crying out and in some ways accusing God of ignoring them, God it says, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God sees what's going on in your life. He sees the struggle. He sees the pain. He sees the disappointments. He sees the accusations. He sees all the things that are going wrong in their lives. He would have seen all the ways they were abused and neglected and tortured and unjust situation. And he knows but he doesn't just kind of know, right? He doesn't just kind of see it. It's like, okay, I see what's going on. That's helpful. Thanks for telling me. 
It's not what's going on. Through this whole story, God has been working already. He has been faithful in ways that they did not see. He has been faithful in ways that they didn't see, but, but actually the text kind of clues us in. God is doing something new. God is doing something different. He is doing something that is being faithful. He is, for, he is being faithful even when they can't see it. So let me just kind of point out a few things that we passed over. It's a great thing about being the preacher. I know it's coming, but I can come back and point to it. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child. Which literally being said there is that he was good. So she saw, here is this child that's being, being born, and she saw that he was good. Which is an echo of Genesis 1 where God says, I'm making the world and it is good. It's a, I mean, it's, a, it's the Hebrew word, it's the, text, it's the actual word there echoing from Genesis 1 calling this new work that God is doing in Moses. This is good. I, I, I'm starting a new creation. I'm starting things. Um, I'm not forsaking the people that I created before, the people that are in chapter one and Genesis. Actually, I'm going to use them, but I'm starting something new. And it's good because it's God's work to make a new people. Verse three, when she could not hide him no, any longer, she took him, she took for him a basket now, we, we translate that basket, okay, no big deal. In the, in the original, it's literally a box. And the only other time that that word is used is when Noah goes into a boat, which is literally a box. I'm not sure what kind of box it was, but big old box called a boat. So it's the same word for, for Noah's boat that saved him from the waters of judgment as the word used here for Moses saved him from the waters of death. It is God is saving Moses and making him a new Noah to lead God's people through the waters of judgment, to save them from the oppression that they are experiencing, to be a new people under God. So, that, so you see, God is not only making him, saying, I'm starting a new thing, I'm, I'm doing a new Noah, right? Noah 2.0, through the waters, and then says, uh, verse uh, 2 and 3, can have no longer in the, uh, in the basket. She put the child in it, placed it in the banks. What the, uh, amongst the reeds. What the sense you get in the story is that Moses is an only child. He's the first son, right? He has a story. When you read the story, like all you see in view is Moses. And then you get introduced to his older sister. And then you get introduced later on to his older brother. But the story begins by saying Moses, who is actually in, this, in their family, the youngest child, he's the one that God's using, right? And we call that election in the story. In Genesis, God chooses the weak to make them the vessels of God's strength. It's, it's, the, it's God's pattern. He always uses the people that are least likely, right? You would expect God would use, right, the oldest son of the best family. That's not who God uses. God, you would think that God would choose for his people the, the coolest, hippest, prettiest, handsomest people on the whole planet that are strong and smart. That's not who God chooses. God chooses the weak and the helpless people like us, even though you are pretty and handsome. God chooses to use that which is weak for his strength of saving them. 
And then it's the last one. So here we have him at the, at the uh, verses 15 through 22. Moses sits down at a well, and then he meets his wife at the well, right? If you know the story of Jacob, that's what happens with Jacob, right? Sits down at a well, meets his wife at the well. See, he is the new Jacob. Moses is the new Jacob that will bless the nations, that God's going to use to bless the nations of, and tell them about who God is and what he's done for them. You see, God, the gospel begins with God doing more than we can see. Right? God's doing more in this story than we can just kind of see with the naked eye. God is doing in your life, and we see maybe five or ten things that God's doing in our life, like on the best day when we have like eight hours of sleep and highly caffeinated. God is doing 10,000 things in your life that you are not seeing. God is doing 10,000 things in their lives, 10 million things in the story of Egypt right now, in the story of uh, Moses, that we did not see, that they can't see in the story. But God is being faithful to fulfill his promises. He is being faithful to work even when they can't see him. They... And we are being called to faith in a God who is doing more than we can see because all these things, we're talking about new creation, uh, new, uh, new people, choosing the lesser, choosing the, the weak and the impotent who can't do anything for themselves, choosing them, that is all going to culminate in Jesus who is, right? Jesus is the new creation. He's the one who gives us a new heart, right? Moses will never give them a new heart. Jesus is the new Noah, who saves us through the waters of God's judgment. Jesus walks through the waters of judgment so that we walk through on dry land to receive God's mercy and kindness. That's why we talk about baptism, right? Baptism is going down into the waters of judgment and being raised out to new life. It's a symbol of what's happened in the heart. That's what Jesus does for us, right? He saves us from the waters of judgment so that we can, like Moses' name, right? Moses' name, I drew him out of the water. God is drawing us out of the water of judgment through Jesus. And Jesus is becoming for us. In Jesus, we become a new people that bless our neighbors, that bless the world, that bless the people around us to tell them about who God is. It is right for us to risk in our faith to trust this Jesus because he will reward us. He will bless us. He has empowered us. He is greater than all the momentary pleasures of sin. So Hebrews, remember Hebrews, just to call back to your mind, Hebrews 11, 25 to 26. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The sin that, call, that calls to you, that would have you, is always going to take life from you. Sin will always take, it will take, it will take from you. Sin will always call you back to fleeting pleasures that, yeah, they, they get you for a moment and you, it, it, they satisfy you for five minutes, but when it's done, the next day you wake up and you are still right where you were before. But Jesus is always giving life. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasure of Israel of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Jesus will always reward you with more of Jesus. You get Jesus, you get life. And when you get life in Jesus, you get life that never ends, that is never running dry, that will always quench and satisfy your soul. When you get Jesus, you get somebody who is always faithful, who is always working, even when you can't see it. Jesus is always 
always, always working in us and working for us to satisfy us with God because God would have us be happy in Jesus. That is where God is leading us in the book of Exodus to find more of Jesus, to dwell with him, to know him, not so that we can have uh, kind of like a better view on the world, but that we get more of Jesus. We get more of him and we get more satisfied more satisfied hearts in him, are more satisfied with him, and Lord willing, I pray that we do not indulge and cultivate the sins in our lives, that we will say no to the sins, that we will encourage the grace that we see in each other's lives because we see God working in each other. We see God working more than we could even imagine because God is working even when we can't see it. We can rest in this God. We can trust him because we get more of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have saved us in Jesus, and we ask that you would satisfy us with him and help us to know that you are working even when we can't see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.